The following is Voices of Experience radio show and podcast. No promotional fees are paid by authors or other guests who appear on the show. If you have comments or suggestions, call the Voices of Experience hotline at 425-653-1166. That's 425-653-1166. They would love a base hit into the gap and they could win it with junior speed the stretch. And the 0-1 pitch on the way to Edgar Martinez. One on the line, down the left field line for a base hit. Here comes Joy. Here is Junior to third base. They're going to wave him in. The throw to the plate will be late. The Mariners are going to play for the American League Championship. I don't believe it. It just continues. My, oh, my. Edgar Martinez with a double ripped down the left field line, and they are going crazy at the kingdom. Welcome to Voices of Experience, and I'm sure many of you know who that was, Dave Niehaus, and that was calling the big hit by Edgar, excuse me, Edgar Martinez, yes, hit a double into left field, and uh, Ken Griffey Jr. went from first all the way around to home, and Seattle ended up beating the New York Yankees and went to the American League Championship, and they beat him by a score of 6-5. to five. I've asked a lot of people to weigh in today. As, as their greatest baseball moment that they remember, that was mine. I was at the game, mm-hmm. and I remember sneaking down from the 300 level down to the 200 level. We were pretty close to the um, sports area where the announcing goes on and the broadcast, and uh, just saw. I remember Ken Griffey Jr. because there was one out, or maybe nobody out. That's right. And rounding second, I'm going. Well, he's going to stop at third because he's going to wait for a fly ball to score the one to right. win the game. But then about, he passed the shortstop, and I go, he's not stopping. <laughs> and darn it, if he didn't round third coming in, and he slid right under the throw, and the Mariners did it. That was my favorite moment in baseball. So there we go. Welcome again to Voices of Experience. And this game and we're talking about today, and the show is going to all be about Seattle and the sports. And... My belief that Seattle has an incredible story to tell, not only on the diamond, but mainly outside of baseball itself and the shenanigans of the ownership groups that have come and gone, Mm -hmm. the Seattle Pilots, that one-year wonder team that was here in 1969. And, of course, then there was the Seattle Mariners, who's been full of drama ever since they've come to Seattle. So we have a whole group of people going to join us with current interviews, and some I've had previously in, in my uh, history of uh, watching baseball in this town, which started, you know, really in the 1960s when we had the Seattle Rainiers as a AAA team here in Seattle, and now it's, of course, the Tacoma Rainiers. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be talking about that today, and um, we're going to talk to Michael Thompson again, speaking of the Tacoma Rainiers, the CEO of the Tacoma Rainiers, part two of my interview I had with him Last week, that will be towards the end of the show. Art Teal, I think everybody's heard of Art Teal. Uh, he was with the Seattle Post Intelligencer for many years, and uh, he also had his own website, sportspress.com. And uh, I'm not sure that's active right now, but I had an interview with him. This was a couple of years ago, and he is an encyclopedia on the pilots and also the Mariners. So I'm not going to go into any more detail there because. He's got so much to share in the time that we have today. Now, Ado Vanny, he's probably not a name on the top of many people's list, but I had an opportunity to visit with him in the late 1990s, and he was an icon in baseball in the 1940s, and he played with the Seattle Rainiers then, and uh, he was born in Seattle. Um, He died in Seattle, basically. He went to Queen Anne High School, someone who— again, would have been a Ken Griffey Jr. of his day. So that was Ido Vanny, again, in the late 90s. And then Rip Kaminsky. Remember that name? Oh, yeah. The Peanut Man? Yep. Okay, so that's good. I'm going to talk to him. Didn't play baseball, but he could throw a mean bag of peanuts. He could. And You better catch it. Yeah, and when he did that, when the Mariners started, what, in 1977, 78, in that time frame, 
till about 1992, they had never had a winning season. It was kind of Rick Kaminsky was the entertainment at the Kingdom. So <laughs> they owed him a lot more than they paid him. But uh, I had a conversation with him as well. So we have um, a really good show here today. And let's start with one of the individuals I asked to call in on the Voices of Experience hotline and give their favorite baseball memory. Here's uh, the first batter on the show today. Hello, this is uh, Greg Nichols. Paul, you left a voicemail asking me to share my favorite baseball memory. I thought, sure, I can do that. Then I started thinking about baseball and the role that it's played in my life and my family's life and realized that that's a lot harder question than it seems. I grew up a Cubs fan. I was in Chicago in 1969 when they should have won the National League pennant. Sadly, the Mets got in the way. I had a role to play in building the uh, ballpark here in Seattle. And so opening day of the new ballpark was a big day for me. But I've got to say that for me, maybe the one memory that stands out the most was when the Cubs first visited Seattle, which was shortly uh, after I became mayor. The Cubs played a big role in my family's uh, life in Chicago. And so I invited my cousins to come out as interleague play started and the Cubs made their very first visit to uh, play the Mariners. The cousins did come out. I was able to get a hold of uh, Ron Santo, uh, who is a Seattle native, but a Chicago guy, uh, and invite him to join with my family and with people he grew up with here in Seattle for a little uh, reception uh, when the Cubs came to town. He was an, an incredible athlete. He battled uh, diabetes his entire life, uh, but despite that, was just an outstanding human being and a great athlete. My cousins came. They loved our new ballpark, uh, and we had just a wonderful family time. So that was former Mayor Greg Nichols, and it was great to hear from him and participate in this uh, forum that we have today. And uh, again, he was uh, very nice to do that. And he is a huge baseball fan, but a huge soccer fan. I think he's even more of a Sounders mm-hmm. fan than baseball. But thank you, Greg Nichols, for uh, calling in on that. Okay, let's go with the interview I just mentioned a few moments ago, and that is Ido Vanny. And uh, I did this again in the late 1990s. So let's get to it. A true Seattle baseball legend, Ido Vanny, is with us this morning on Profiles of Experience. He grew up in Seattle, attending Queen Anne High School, and had the first hit, first stolen base, and scored the first run at 6 Seattle Stadium that stood in the heart of Rainier Valley between 1939 and 1978. He was a player on three championship Seattle Rainier baseball teams of the Pacific Coast League. He was also manager and general manager in later years of the Seattle Rainiers. He was also the director of sales for the Seattle Pilots during their one and only major league year in the Pacific Northwest. Good morning, Mr. Vanny, and welcome to Profiles of Experience. Do you think Seattle proved it was a baseball town last fall? I've always said that Seattle was a baseball town from back in the golden areas of 1939, 40, and 41, when Mr. Sick took over the franchise and built a new stadium out there in Rainier Valley called Sick Stadium. I've always said if you give Seattle a winner, the people would go out in the cow pasture to watch you play. What did you make as a player for the Rainiers in 1939? In 1939, I made $250 a month, plus $3 a day meal money, which wasn't an awful lot, but I had a lot of incentive clauses in my contract. Well, what do you think about player salaries today? Well, I, I think the player salaries might be a little out of line, but if they keep getting out of line, even if we build a new stadium, they're going to have to scale a house seats, prices of the seats to accommodate the salaries that are going to come in because those uh, those suites up there, not everybody's going to be able to go up there and sit in those suites. You've got to think of the poor soul that brings a wife and uh, four kids to a ball game. They've got to have seats for those people to come. They're the best salesmen you got around. And if they can't go to the ball game, who's going to go? Do you think the uh, baseball strike permanently hurt baseball? I think it did, and I certainly hope that it doesn't ever happens again. If they do, if they have another baseball strike, they might as well pack up and find a good padlock for these doors on these stadiums because the people will not put up with it. Why do you think that baseball is so enduring and so popular? Well, it's always been a popular game because it's a simple game. 
the rules haven't changed in a hundred years except for this DH that they have. And uh, it's the same confines. You're still playing the same game with the bat and ball and the glove. And the fundamentals of the game are still the same. If you want to bunt, you've got to be able to bunt a guy over. You've got to hit and run or a stolen base. The only thing that I'd say that it's upgraded to baseball is probably the playing fields that they have today. And probably the uh, uniforms. You played in those wool suits that were, I imagine, extremely hot. We'd go into Sacramento. The temperature would be 115, 118, 120, and you play in those wool suits. And, boy, it was hot. Yeah, we had a 200-game schedule in those days. We played uh, uh, a week in each town, which was, uh, which was a good thing because you could unpack your clothes and you could set up house like you wanted, you know, and you'd be going to the ballpark each day, and you'd probably face one pitcher on Tuesday, and you'd see him again on Sunday or Saturday night, which was very helpful. And you learned to, to set up schedules on your own little scorecard, how this guy pitched me and got me out the time before. How am I going to hit him again on Saturday night or Sunday? Well, what was your favorite team that you played on and why? Well, my favorite team that I played on here in Seattle was the 1940 team. As a team and as a unit, they played together with good teamwork. And to me, the 1940 team was probably the best one that, that I had here. And I also was associated with many other pennant winners here in Seattle. Baseball legend, Ed Vanny, thank you very much for spending time in Voices of Experience. Thank you, Paul. Hi, my name is Mike Heavey. And in... Uh, the famous 1995 season, which the Mariners ended up really saving baseball with the excitement. That season started out in January and February with the players being locked out. So the season started late. I was a state senator in Olympia, and Jay Buhner, Ken Griffey, Eric Hansen, one other player came down to Olympia to support a bill that I had introduced to prohibit strike breakers, you know, to bring up double A players to play in major league baseball, that kind of thing. And the thing that really impressed me was what a person Jay Buhner was. He was just so positive, welcoming to uh, every person he meets. Anyway, thank you for doing this. Great memories. So, again, that's former judge and uh, West Seattle legislator, state senator, Mike Heavey. So thank you for that uh, information there. And nice to hear about Jay Buhner. I mean, um, good to hear that he's such a good guy. Yeah. In addition to being kind of a rascal. You know, <laughs> he was. He, I miss him. You know, he was yeah. just a lot of fun. Well, that whole Mariner team at that time was a lot of fun, too. And, hey, let's say they're starting to win again. I'm yeah. not going to get, you know, too excited over the moon on it, but hey, four in a row after what seemed to be a really disastrous moments heading into the yeah. big week. They've kind of turned it around, so we'll see uh, what they can really come up with. All right, so now we're moving to the interview I had with Art Teal several years ago, and you know what? Let's just jump right into it. My point about baseball in Seattle was is summarized in one sentence. It was never a bad baseball town. It was a town of bad baseball. Prior to the Seattle Mariners, there was a major league team in Seattle, and their name was the Seattle Pilots. And they played for one year, 1969. The tale of the Seattle Pilots is only growing with the passage of time. It was the only team in modern history to, again, last for one year. There was a lot of finger-pointing going on then and now as to why that happened. If you're interested in the story of the pilots after what you hear today, you can go online and watch an incredible documentary called Seattle Pilots Short Flight into History. It is produced by Steve Cox and Brad Powers. Now, the state of Washington sued Major League Baseball for allowing the pilots to move to Milwaukee and become the Brewers, which they still call home. Major League Baseball cut a deal with then-Attorney General Slade Gordon that if the state of Washington dropped the lawsuit, they would award Seattle with another team. That's when the Mariners were born. If all this drama wasn't enough, a relief pitcher for the Pilots that year by the name of Jim Bouton wrote a book called Ball Four. It chronicled his experience with the Pilots that year and other memories he had in Major League Baseball. 
Let me just read something that was said about Ball 4 at the time. Again, it was published in 1970, the year after the pilots moved. Ball 4 stunned the sports world. The commissioner, executives, and players were shocked. Sports writers called author Jim Bouton a traitor and a social leper. Baseball commissioner Bowie Kuhn tried to force him to declare the book untrue. So if that doesn't pique your interest in wanting to read this book, I don't know what will. Art Teal, former Seattle PI sports columnist, author, and co-founder of SportsPressNorthwest.com is my guest. Art's outstanding sports coverage has been around the Seattle area for decades. We both have something in common, and that is we attended opening day of the Seattle Pilots on April 11, 1969. Of course, we didn't know it at the time, but we did have some shared experiences at the game without knowing it. I asked Art, what did Major League Baseball coming to Seattle mean to him in 1969? There was so much excitement about the arrival of Major League Baseball. And as a kid growing up, I used to read the box scores and follow the teams in the standings. And I was a big fan of the Dodgers only because on occasion, uh, if the uh, atmospherics were right at night, you could get the radio signal from Los Angeles and you could listen to both uh, in, in San Francisco uh, or in Los Angeles as well as San Francisco, you could uh, get signals of major league games. And I thought that was just very cool. Uh, this was a homecoming of baseball in an area uh, where I grew up. And so naturally I was excited. And of course it became subject of one of the great literary masterpieces of of baseball, ball four by Jim Bowden, relief pitcher at the time for the pilots who had much greater success as an author than he did as a ball player. And I look at that book, it's almost like the Wizard of Oz when the curtain was drawn back and Toto, <laughs> you saw the wizard, who he was in mm -hmm. Flesh and Blood. It's kind of that's what Jim Bowden did to baseball. It pulled back the curtain, but more importantly, I think he changed journalism. Yeah, I think he certainly did change sports journalism and his uh, account was very honest and gritty and vivid of the, the, you know, the shortcomings and the humanity of all the players when coverage up to that time, generally in sports, deified players, or at least you know, had them up on a pedestal that, that they were somehow special people. And what they were was very talented athletes, but they were no more free of life's ups and downs than any of the rest of it. One of the things I read, and it was a while ago, the ownership group, they wanted to expand the following year. They didn't want to start in 1969, but something with Kansas City or something like that forced them to uh, actually open up in 1969. Do you know anything about that? As I re recollect, there was a desire to have these two expansion teams start, one in Kansas City and the one in, in Seattle, to start in at least 1970, maybe even 71, because Kansas City had lost its athletics team to Oakland when Charlie Finley bought the club and moved it west. And so they were without a team. And there was a very influential senator at the time in Missouri by the name of Stuart Symington. And he had a lot of influence. Uh, in the Senate, and at, at that time and for many years afterwards, any time a politician was upset with Major League Baseball, it would threaten to roll back the sports antitrust exemption, uh, a federal law that allowed them to operate as a monopoly. The owners never wanted that, so they always tried to appease politicians. And the upshot was that Symington said, no, I want a team back in Kansas City sooner than that. And because Major League Baseball and all sports leagues like to have an even number of teams to create a balanced schedule, Major League Baseball was intimidated by Symington's threats, and so they moved up the expansion of the Pilots and uh, the Royals to 1969. I think that would have been a, a big help to have started in 71. You know, and the other thing, when we discussed the demise of the pilots, too, Seattle was in the midst of a real recession then. Well, yeah, it was obviously the Boeing layoffs at that time uh, was, a, was a huge region-wide blow. 
you know, the, I think the famous billboard in Seattle at the time, where the last person leaving Seattle, please turn out the light. One of the reasons I think uh, Seattle had been successful, but the pilots were in that crosshairs at that time of, of dealing with uh, the setback at Boeing. So, yeah, that was a, definitely a thumb on the pilot's turnkey. Lou Pinella was drafted for the pilots. Schultz, the manager, thought he was a hothead. They traded him to Kansas City, and he became Rookie of the Year. Yes, he was here. Uh, it was just spring training, and I think it was April 1st. He got April 1st of 69, which would have been a, just a few days before the opener. They traded him to uh, Kansas City. I, I remember asking Lou once, and he had very little recollection of uh, pilot spring training. Spring training at the pilot didn't resonate a whole lot with him, but that was a, a great irony that he was a, he was a pilot for about a month. The pilots actually got off to a pretty good start that year. You know, they won their the opener and, the, and the, things looked decent in April, but July and August were the just terrible months. I think August they were six and twenty-two, and you know, again, I don't think anybody who understood baseball then or now had much more expectation because the expansion rules in which they populated the roster were pretty onerous. They were getting uh, most major league teams in the expansion draft. They were getting their, you know, 25th and 26th players. I think they were only like three games behind the division lead in July. So it wasn't like it was altogether terrible, but they quickly faded in July and August. When we move now into the Mariners now, oh, they were created by the lawsuit of the Seattle Pilots. It was Slade Gordon, the Attorney General, went to the American League or maybe the Major League. I don't know that much detail about it, but they were suing the American League. They settled and said, okay, we'll give you the Seattle Mariners if you uh, drop the lawsuit. Is that essentially correct? Yeah, that was uh, in... Uh... Uh, Slade Gordon was then uh, state attorney general, and he joined the city, county, and uh, his state offices in a suit filed in 1970 in the County for breach of contract, basically. The, the MLB didn't live up to what it said it would do to help the pilots sustain and then pull them out without legal justification to move them to Milwaukee, where they were purchased by a used car salesman by the name of Bud Seeley who went on to have some success as uh, MLB commissioner, as well as owning what became the Brewers. Gordon just took so long to get this case to trial. It actually didn't get started until, I think, 75 or 76. And Gordon did a masterful job of painting the owners as crooks, lowlifes, and near-do-well. The MLB sued for a settlement, or pursued a settlement, and got it with the city by granting the franchise. Gordon's summary was that it was my experience that if, after dealing with these owners, that if one of them moved into your neighborhood, property values would go down. <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> and uh, and so they knew, and MLB really knew that they had no shot on the relocation of the pilot. So that's when they successfully, oh, well, that's when the plaintiffs successfully were awarded the franchise that became the Seattle Mariner. Emmett Watson, the uh, famed uh, columnist at the Seattle PI and, and later at the Seattle Times, wrote that this is no way to start a ball club unless you want to name this ball club the Seattle Litigants. And uh, that's always stuck with me because it, it was true that winning a settlement in a lawsuit is not exactly the emotional ringer that you want for the start of a ball club. And the, you know, the Kingdom did come into existence in 1976, so the, the franchise would have a much better chance of success in a ballpark that's at 58,000 people. As we know, they struggled mightily. They were the slowest team to 500 of any franchise in the modern history of Major League Sports in North America. It took them 15 years to get to a 500 season. And they seem to be in perpetual jeopardy of moving and repeating the same thing that happened to the pilot. During the 1995 baseball season with the Mariners, they were really limping along up through the All-Star break. I think they were like 13 and a half games out of first. But Ken Griffey Jr. got hurt, but he came back in late August, and they caught fire, and they played like they never had before. They went on to play the Yankees in the American League playoffs. I think those several weeks saved baseball in Seattle. What are your thoughts on that? Well, yeah, that's a very good possibility that 
we would not have uh, baseball. But it, I wrote in my book, Out of Left Field, uh, which I published in 2002 about the business success of the Mariners. My point about baseball in Seattle was, is summarized in one sentence. It was never a bad baseball town. It was a town of bad baseball. And that's a big distinction because all it took for the Mariners to get $380 million in public funding for a new stadium was six weeks of good baseball. From mid-August of 95, as you mentioned, through September and then one magical playoff series against the Yankees was all it took to turn the fortunes around after they'd been struggling. If they had just invested in baseball you know, if the ownership, the original ownership uh, that took over and sank in 1977 with Danny Kaye and five local businessmen, they were in over their heads financially. They sold to an Orange County businessman by the name of George Argeros in 1981, and he turned out to be a crook as far as I was concerned, at least in terms of how he was, you know, lying about how much he was going to do for Seattle. He tried to move the teams. He tried to buy the Padres. Finally, he sold to Jeff Smolian. I think in 1989, another out-of-towner uh, who owned uh, had a broadcasting fortune based in Indianapolis. Uh, these successions of out-of-town owners weren't embraced by the local community, nor did the owners make an effort to engage. They always seemed to be looking to relocate the team elsewhere. And again, you know, it was a town of bad baseball and people didn't respond because the, the owners didn't invest. And a part of it was the Kingdom, even though the Kingdom saved the franchise by being an adequate place to play. It was also indoors in a place in the world that I think has the best summers. And to watch baseball, you had to go indoors. And I think that was a big impediment to some people. I, I think winning baseball would have topped that excuse. But as long as you weren't successful, people could use the good weather outdoors as, a, as an excuse not to go indoors. Couldn't agree with you more on that because I'd be one of those people. I'm a baseball fan, but there were days I'm going, I'm not going to a game. I'm I just going to be outside because I, I agree our summers are wonderful. And it's interesting when you go across the country, when you say you're from Seattle, 99% of the time, it's not like, oh, that's where Microsoft or Starbucks is. Oh, it always rains there. And I'm going, well, no, not it really doesn't. But the perception is that it does. And I think baseball thought the same thing living on the East Coast or something, the people who made the decisions. And I remember them saying, you have to build a dome stadium if you're going to get a franchise. Well, I think uh, there was a collection of thoughts because, again, this was authorized in 1968. The Kingdom was part of a package uh, authorized uh, by voters, King County voters in 1968. The community leaders were the ones that decided to make a domed stadium, in part because that's what MLB said, but that's also it housed, housed the uh, NFL Seahawks as well. And so there was a consensus in the community that dovetailed with what the view would have been in Major League and uh, NFL offices at the time, is that Seattle's weather, especially if you're going to use it for an expansion football team in, in November and December, it, you needed to be indoors. And of course, the Houston Astrodome in 1964 was the bell cow for this notion of multi-purpose indoor stadiums. And they didn't have to worry about rain down there. They had to worry about heat. But other domes came out, the Silver Dome in Detroit and the, the Metro Dome in Minneapolis. And all these indoor stadiums with roofs seemed to be very trendy. And the fact was that the Kink Dome was a very successful business enterprise because they had more than 200 event dates every year of people occupying the place for flat shows, such as the car shows, the boat shows, and outdoor sportsman shows, and concerts. Uh, it was a it was a very well utilized public space because it had a nine acre roof, <laughs> keeping the elements out, but only for 24 years. And uh, then they blew it up because the passion for sports was such that the teams got what they wanted. The sports specific two sports specific stadiums side by side in Soto. Um, to replace the Kingdom, and both of them have been highly successful. The first of a three-game series with Ted Williams and the Washington Senators. Coleman going for Washington, Gene Brabender starting for the Pilots, Ted Williams and manager Joe Schultz meeting with the umpires at home plate, and we shall take a look at the starting lineups for both teams in just one minute. <laughs> 
Go, go, you pilots. The Yankees visit next. On August 1 and 2 and 3, we hope they'll be perplexed. By what the pilot pitchers throw, they've surely got the touch to fool the likes of Papatone when he's up in the clutch. Go, go, you pilots. Last time the Yanks were here, we had a bloomin' Donnybrook. The punches were severe. Remember, too, their pitching star, a man that we admire. He'll be here once again. I mean, of course, Mel Stottlemyre. Yankees are here for their final visit of 1969, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, August 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. In addition, August 3rd is bat day. For ticket information, phone the pilots at Parkway 58500. That's the late Rod Belcher, and he was a play-by-play announcer for the Seattle Rainiers, and he also worked for King 5 TV throughout the 1960s. He also wrote the Seattle Pilots theme song, Go, Go, You Pilots. He obviously changed some of the lyrics for the song in promoting an upcoming series with the New York Yankees, as he said during the jingle on August 1, 2, and 3, and we'll hope they'll be perplexed. Now, at the beginning of this clip, you heard the voice of Bill Shonley, and he, along with Jimmy Dudley, were the co-announcers for the Seattle Pilots. And in this particular evening, they were playing the Washington Senators, who were then managed by Ted Williams. Hi, this is Rob Schultz. My favorite Mariner memory was 20 years ago in the Kingdome. My son and I attended a game. Chris Bazio was on the mound. Two out in the ninth inning. A high chopper went over Bazio. Omar, little O, grabbed it. His head hat fell off. He fired the first to complete the no-hitter. And Bedlam ran out. It was an awesome memory, awesome game. In my favorite message of baseball, I have to go back to 2012 at Cheney Stadium when I was able to witness one of the great features of baseball, which is the walk-off win in a game won by the Tacoma Rainiers. young man named Scott Savistano, who was a utility player for many years, was playing first base until about the 18th inning, as I recall, and they made him the pitcher. It was closing in on 1 a.m. in the morning. He got the side out, came up second, I believe, in the bottom of the 18th, swung the bat, and like Mighty Casey, did not strike out, but hit the home run over the fence to win the game. 18 innings, 2012, Scott Savistano. So there you go. There were a friend of mine, Rob Schultz, made the comments about the Kingdome and that no-hitter that Chris Fazio pitched. And I haven't talked to him about that game in a long time. And he told me then, when it happened back in early 2000s, that uh, that was his favorite game. So he's held true to that. The other gentleman you just heard was a guy by the name of Chester Rito. And he's an usher at the Tacoma Rainiers baseball team down in the dugout club. He's more than an usher. He is the heart and soul of the Tacoma Rainiers. Coming up in just a moment, or right now, is Rick Kaminsky, the peanut man. Our guest this week on U.S. West Profiles of Experience is Rick Kaminsky, but much better known as the peanut man at the Kingdome. He even refers to himself as a major league nut. Rick has been pitching peanuts in the Kingdome for over 22 years. And Rick, how did you become the peanut man? Well, actually, it's a strange story. As you know from, from our past, I was, a, uh, I was a Vietnam vet, and I was uh, at Shoreline Community College where I was student body president, where I happened to meet you, and you were student body president at, at Wazoo. That's right. And uh, from there, I went to the UW on the GI Bill, and, uh, boy, after, <laughs> after the four years, I took a break from school and decided to go to work to get a breather at the Kingdom. 22 years ago. Yeah, it was 22 years ago. Uh, well, actually, it's 21 years ago, and this is just the beginning of my 22nd year. Rick, what's an event at the Kingdom that stands out in your mind in, like, 21 years that just really was something very special? From my perspective, uh, Chicago White Sox uh, bullpen gave me a standing O one time for a, for a shot I threw, for a number of shots, actually, I threw in their area when they were looking. That's very unusual, but I was really honored because they were professionals, you know. All right. Also, one time, this is actually in 95, a group of visiting Japanese school kids were there, and <laughs> one of them came up and told me that I was famous. I was a hero in Japan. In Japan? <laughs> I said, who knew, you know? 
I never get out there. Ken Brevy Jr. and Rick Kaminsky. Oh, uh, yeah, cool. <laughs> and then uh, after Chris Brosio threw his no-hitter a few years back, he, sure. uh, he signed a T-shirt calling me the best arm in the West. Probably the most embarrassing moment I've had was, you know, somebody will go up, I tell them to use two hands, they put their hands right in front of their face, and they don't close their hands in time. The bag goes right through their hands, and they're eating peanuts the hard way, bag and all. Before they wanted to. Well, you got to take them out of the shell. I recommend it. Hey, Rick, before we leave this morning, what uh, current projects are you working on? Oh, I'm, I'm currently beginning a, an association with the Liquidators Outlets. We've been talking to Rick Kaminsky, the peanut man, known as a major league nut. Now, <laughs> he, that's on his card. I didn't say that. <laughs> Rick, true, thank you true. very much for uh, being with us this morning on U.S. West Profiles of Experience. Thank you. I appreciate it very much, Paul. Thanks for having me. See you down at the Dome. U.S. West, making your life better in the Puget Sound area. Hi, this is Bob calling from Issaquah. My best baseball moment was by far the double. Edgar hit in 95 to score Griffey from first. I was on the 200 level right by the press box, and as soon as Griffey scored, the first person I locked eyes with was Rick Riz. Somehow, I don't know, he looked around, looked at me, I looked at him, gave us the thumbs up, and it was just quite a moment. But then the other reason that's my favorite favorite baseball memory was because of the call by Dave Niehaus. Didn't hear it then because I was at the game. Have heard it many times since. I think it's the best call I've ever heard. The way he says, the throw to the plate is going to be late. We're going on to ALCS. And if you get a chance, listen to Dave Niehaus's call. Thanks for having me on. Hi, my name is Phil Frick. I was seven years old in 1951. My dad was a doctor in Dayton, and he took my mother and I to a medical convention in New York the week of the 1951 World Series between the Yankees and the Giants. We saw game two. The lineup included Mickey Mantle, Willie Mays, Joe DiMaggio, Leo DeRocher, Phil Rizzuto, and Yogi Berra. It would be the last season for DiMaggio and the first for Mantle and Mays. In the fifth inning, Mays flies into deep right center field. DiMaggio and Mantle converge on the fly ball. DiMaggio waves Mantle off, and he catches a cleat in the drainage cover, falls to the ground with a wrenched knee, and DiMaggio makes the catch. Mantle was out for the season. The Yankees win 4-2. to two. Well, that was Bob and Phil. Bob Casey is my brother. So I said, you have to do this sure. for your brother to call in. And, uh, <laughs> you know, we're not going to be together ever it's gonna, again. It's going to be a bad Thanksgiving. Yes, bad Thanksgiving. And then there was Phil Frick, a friend of mine from West Seattle. That's incredible. He was back at that game. And I've known him <laughs> for a long time. I never knew that. So thank you both, Bob and Phil, for that. So we're coming down to the uh, final moments of to today's program. And last week I had an interview with uh, Michael Thompson, and he's the CEO of the uh, Tacoma Rainiers. And again, I think I said I'm an investor and part owner myself of the Rainiers, just full disclosure on that. But I wanted to talk to him more about what it's like running a team day to day and getting really into the weeds of that aspect of a baseball team because it's far different from going to the game. There's a lot of things that go on behind the scenes. So let's pick up with my second uh, phase of the interview I had with uh, Michael Thompson, CEO, the Tacoma Rainiers. How about challenges that you didn't anticipate? Well, there was this little thing in 2020 called a pandemic that hit. It shut down minor league baseball for the entire year. We were obviously not at all prepared for that. We were running at a pretty good profit up till that point. The Mariners had asked us to invest a couple of million dollars in improving the uh, the experience at Cheney Stadium for their players, including building a new uh, batting cage and uh, improving the lighting and, and a few other things. We put that in place during the winter between 2019 and 2020. And then two weeks before our season was supposed to start, we learned that the, the whole thing was shut down. And there was no baseball, and so there was no revenue in Tacoma. And uh, we went from making a, a fair profit to losing our shirts in 2020. And then in 2021, 
we were only op- able, especially in the first three months of the season, only able to open the, the seating halfway. The thing that we didn't realize at that point was that Major League Baseball took that opportunity to kind of take over minor league baseball. And the folks in minor league baseball thought this was a horrible thing that they were going to do terrible things to minor league baseball. And in fact, what they did was they professionalized it. And that has done an awful lot to help minor league baseball, all teams, including us, do a better job, put out a better product, and frankly, make more money. And um, 2022 was the best year we've ever had financially, and 2023 was uh, is is uh, starting out as, as being even better than 2022. And it was at least in part because of the platform they minor Major League Baseball gave to us as a much more professional product than what we'd had before. And that seems to have been the goal throughout the United States in terms of they shut down a lot of marginal teams. I got, what, 125 or 30 at that they, time? They, they went from 100 and I believe it was 170 down to 120. Okay. Um, so they shut down about 50 teams. I've heard they're not through yet. Um, don't know that, but um, they we we know that through uh, 2030 there will be 120 teams, and we will see if you know how how the uh, the economics of baseball turn. One of the things that that has caused this is baseball used to have 50 rounds of draft. So they would bring in 50 new players every year, and they needed to have venues for those guys to play. And so having five or six, or in some cases, seven minor league teams inured to their benefit because they had so many people that they had to to work their way through. As they have become more professional in the way that they scout players and the way that they run the, uh, uh, the, the numerics on, uh, on, on uh, the opportunities for players to uh, actually make it to the major leagues where they will help the financial background for the, uh, for the major league teams, they're doing better on eliminating the folks that aren't going to have a chance to, to make it in the, in the majors. And so they are now drafting 20 players each, each year and that may well drop down to 15 or, or less. I don't know, but that's, uh, that seems to be the direction that things are going. And the players who make the cut then will probably make more money. The players who make the cut will make more money, but they'll need, they now need probably fewer minor league stops for them to go on because the, the, the players that they've found are the ones that are, are really going to make it. And uh, they can tell kind of like, Kind of like the NBA. I mean, the NBA has two rounds of drafting right now. And, you know, that's a much more physical game than baseball is. Baseball, there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of mental stuff in baseball, and, and it's tough to tell. You can tell how fast a guy runs. You can tell, uh, in some cases, it's tough to tell where their heads are at on some things and whether they're actually going to be able to uh, not swing at a, uh, a fastball down down below the zone or whatever. As they do a better job, and you're probably going to cut most of this part out, but as they do a better job of, of scouting and of, of determining who's going to be able to make it into the major leagues, they're probably going to be able to get away with drafting fewer. They're always trying to refine that process, but then mm-hmm. There's always things, and that's why we love sports. You think that you have it figured out, and you have this team. And, uh, like, for example, it's not a comparable way I'm trying to suggest this. It's like Oakland Athletics, the worst team in baseball, nine wins, 52 losses, and then they string off seven wins in a row. You know, you just can't tell. How about the changes made, the pitch clock, the uh, bases being larger, throwing the ball over to first base, that all being limited. What's your thoughts on that? I am a huge fan. It, to me, and most of the rules that Major League Baseball put into place this year 
were in minor league baseball the year before. And so we got to see them in action. We saw the uh, the time of a game drop by 28 minutes between 2021 and 2022, just as it did it, between 2022 and 2023 in Major League Baseball. The fans love it. The players love it. And you, you actually have more baseball in less time. Somebody said you've got less non-baseball, and that's in fact what what you're seeing. There's people aren't stepping off the uh, the mound. They aren't adjusting their gloves between every uh, pitch. Uh, they're not throwing over to first a dozen times to uh, to keep the runners close. It's all stuff that doesn't help the action. It's really helping the the game, I think. And I think the fans are loving it on the major league level. They're loving it on the uh, on the. They've loved it on the minor league level for a, for a year more, and the players seem to like it. Yes, I haven't heard really any players complain about it. There have, you? have been some of the older players have complained about it a little bit. They're ones that aren't used to it, but the young players have all seen it coming up through the minor leagues, and so they're used to it. They're used to a pitch clock. They're used to you know hurrying through things and and. Um, it's just part of their routine, and they're not they're not affected by it in a negative way at all. How about working and partnering with the city of Tacoma, Pierce County? How's that relationship? It's been a very good relationship. To a certain extent, some of the heavy lifting was done before I got in there because Cheney Stadium had, had been there since 1960. It hadn't really had much of a, uh, a facelift in, in quite some time. Aaron Artman had gone to the city fathers and said, with the help of the Mariners, actually, and said, we need to improve the product down here, down there, or Major League Baseball is going to move Minor League Baseball out of Tacoma. So that was a real threat at that time. It was a real threat. They were threat. serious. They were going to move were, it, okay? They were serious about it because it, it needed to step up. There was a public-private partnership that was put together. The Cheney family came in and put some money into it, and the city of Tacoma, between the two of them, they, they put about $25 million into uh, improving the stadium, enabling the team to have more revenue-producing areas within the ballpark. And as a consequence, we also paid uh, went from paying $100,000 of rent to paying five hundred thousand dollars worth of rent, which um, was was a fair deal for the uh, for the team and a fair deal for the uh, for the city. We've had a very good relationship with the uh, with the city of Tacoma, and and uh, hope to have a, a continued relationship over the years. I'm 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 lucky to be a a Tacoma kid who uh, who got to see his dreams uh, fulfilled by uh, owning his hometown baseball team. So I'm I'm happy as a as I could be. And your relationship with John Stanton and yourself, and then the Mike, do I have this right that Tacoma and Seattle are the, I think, second closest AAA major league teams that are location literally like 30 miles away. Is there anything to be said about that close proximity that helps? I, I think that there are a couple of things that, that help tremendously. One is that um, from the Mariner's standpoint, if they want to call somebody up half an hour later, they're up. It's an easy transition for uh, for players, and uh, it's an easy transition to uh, to send players up and down between the two clubs. There is a benefit to us in Tacoma. People in Tacoma go to a lot of uh, sports in Seattle. It's you know, an hour to an hour and a half to get up there for uh, during uh, during drive time, and um, so they don't go to that many games. But they're aware of the pricing in Seattle for the hockey team, for the football team, for the for the baseball team. So they come to Cheney Stadium and they realize that they're getting somewhat of a bargain on the pricing that we've got down down in Tacoma. And yet we're getting some good revenue on the product that we've got down there because we are able to, uh, to take advantage of, of people knowing what, what you'd have to pay if you were going to a major league game. Well, that's all the time we have for this edition. The Voices of Experience, my name is Paul Casey. Thank you to Eric Crema and Eric Ryder today in the studios doing so much great work. 
Next week, uh, Dave Williams, he just wrote a book about the William E. Boeing story, A Gift of Flight. Mm-hmm. I've already done the interview. It's fabulous. Lori, uh, Lori. You have a Lori Hardy on next week, Eric. I do. Excuse Lo- me. Yeah, Lori Hardy is a not only a coworker, but she is an entrepreneur through and through, and she has a brand-new podcast, and it's meant for people that, I don't know if you've ever been there in your 50s or 60s, just thinking, what's my next act all about? I want to do something different. Sounds good. That would yeah. be perfect for our audience. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Quote of the week, baseball is 90% mental. The other half is physical. Yogi Berra. A yogiism, right? <laughs> he was great. <laughs> Got to do the math there. <laughs> <laughs> right. Uh, okay, so we have the baseball song and uh, coming up in celebration of this show on baseball. And it's uh, sung by and written by a Terry Cashman. And this version is in celebration of the 2001 Seattle Mariners team that won 116 games, the best in AL history, and tied with the National League Chicago Cubs of 1908. Well, news crew had done it, Edgar's double won it, and Mariner fans were dancing in the dome. The playoff drought had finally died, Joey Chorus sat and cried. A three-game sweep of the Yankees sent those pinstripes home. We're talking baseball, Russ Davis and Pinella, Mariner's baseball, Tino Bobby Ayala, oh, the heat that Randy Johnson threw. There was Edgar, the Bone, and Wilson, too. And there was A-Rod, Junior, and Sweet Lou. Alvin Davis retired. Chris Fascio was hired. Omar was going out. A-Rod coming in. Tino was launching blasts. The Angels were falling fast. And Randy was on his way to his first Cy Young. I'm talking Baseball, refused to lose, was ringing. Mariner's baseball, Rick the peanut man was flinging. Lou had turned his boys of summer loose. And everyone was dancing with the moose. Especially Edgar, Randy and Sweet Lou. KMPS fans love Niehaus. No one calls the Grand Salami like he can.